0: Hi everybody, welcome back to another edition of Beef and Lamb New Zealand's Seen and Heard and this one's a bit of a special one, we're doing double duty here as a, a Seen and Heard podcast and also as a a virtual field day if you like for the Marlborough Sheep and Beef Farmer of the Year 2021. So we're joined by Chris and Richard Dawkins, a um, bit of background before we, we get across to them and talk about them and their business and, and um, that's what we're going to be talking about over the next hour, going into some detail in what they do, and basically why they've won the award. The the Marlborough Sheep and Beef Farmer of the Year Award is about promoting profitable, sustainable, and innovative sheep and beef farming businesses. There's a Marlborough Sheep and Beef Farmer of the Year Trust, which is a non-profit organisation dedicated to identifying excellence in farming in the Marlborough region via comprehensive and wide-ranging judging crit- criteria. So the objective of this webinar slash podcast is to highlight the business success factors of this year's competition winner and through sharing their philosophies their operating systems their management program that's uh, employed by the Dawkins Pyramid Farm it's their vision the vision of the trust that the wider farming community will benefit from these insights so look I'll uh, welcome on now um, remotely we're doing this over Teams, so um, internet's working well today the, there's no rural background noise so this should go well uh, welcome Chris Welcome, Richard, and you're going to tag team a wee bit, so I'm going to just throw this one out there and you can sort out between you, yourself um, who answers it. Give us the, the elevator pitch, I guess, or the, the snapshot, the thumbnail of who you guys are, what your business is.
1: I'll start that one off, Aaron. It's um, Chris here. We're a, uh, we're a family-based farming business at the confluence of the Avon, the Tumul and the Whyhopai Rivers in the um, in the Waihupai Valley. Um, Julia and myself have been uh, farming as a husband-wife partnership since 1978. It's a 602 hectare property plus a 30 hectare lease a little bit further down the valley, approximately 468 hectares we call effective sheep and cattle country. We also have a hundred hectare vineyard, 95 hectares of plantation pine and amenity trees. Um, We would have an average annual rainfall of about 780 mils, but approximately seven months of the year is spent in a soil moisture deficit beginning the third week of uh, October. Um, Julia and I farmed as a partnership up until uh, June 2020. and Younger son Richard and his wife Jess have taken over the lease of the agricultural operation. So um, that's pretty much us in a um, in a nutshell, Aaron. We're about 250 metres above sea level, about 20 kilometres inland from uh, from Blenheim, southwest of Blenheim.
0: So how did is it a, a family farm before you, Chris, or how did you end up there?
1: The, the family farm was actually in the um, outer Marlborough Sounds in um, Port Gore, but when um, when I was born in the, um, in the mid-1950s, um, mother and father made the conscious decision to move closer to the amenities in terms of um, education and health. I had two older sisters at that time and then subsequently one younger sister. Access to Port Gore is um, sea only and round Cape Jackson and into Cook Strait, so wee bit um, prone to the elements as such. So, mother and father uh, moved up here in 1954 and then they subsequently retired into Blenheim in 1978 when uh, I purchased the property.
0: And so, Richard, you're um, formally sort of taking over the business since June 2020, but what's sort of been Your pathway to that point, have you been on the farm or did you work off farm for a while before you came back to to work with Chris?
2: Yeah, so uh, we, uh, my wife and I um, recently came home in 2017 and and had spent a significant, I had spent a significant time away from the farm um, nine years after leaving school. So, um, yeah, it it was great to be home and um, yeah, a fair bit of catching up involved. Start of last financial year, Jess and I purchased the stock, plant and machinery, and um, it, was, it was an interesting time. A lot, a lot happening on farm. So, in 2016, we developed what we call the Stage One Vineyard, which was a 50 hectare development, and uh, two years ago, now uh, developed Stage Two, which was a 44 hectare vineyard. So. Between two vineyard developments and succession planning, um, well actually at the same time, we purchased 187 hectares of the neighbour's property as well. So a fair bit going on and um, a, a few changes from when I was much younger, um, a bit of a different dynamic between development work going on at the new block and, and vineyards as well. So an interesting time to take over. and. Um, yeah, mum and dad having obviously just won the Mulberry Sheep and Beef Farmer of the year, obviously a lot to live up to. So Jess and I will give it a good crack and hopefully continue the legacy.
0: So you talked a bit about the farm itself and talked about the, the family that's involved, but I guess tell us, not uh, finances, are sort of. I don't want to get into the dollars and cents yet, but where do you make your money on the farm? What, what do you run
1: on the place? Um, historically, we'd be, we'd be classified as a um, sheep and cattle enterprise, 50-50 um, stock units split between sheep and cattle. Um, we've tried to spread the risk by um, putting a few trees into the, um, into the mix, and um, we've also got um, vineyards. So, I guess, in essence, we've, the income streams would be timber for farm wool log sales, say, also um, carbon from the trees. We've got the, um, the sheep and the associated sheep meat and wool. We've got cattle which is spread between carryover dairy cows that we re- recycle back into the dairy industry. We've got uh, Jersey bulls that we lease and subsequently sell to dairy farmers as herd size. And um, we also have um, dairy beef as well. And then on top of that we've got um, some Patrick's got a bee business based on the farm, Richard's got a uh, firewood business where he uh, is able to utilise waste wood. Um, the vineyard is split between half of it is actually leased out for a regular monthly income, the other half we manage ourselves for as contract growers and um, in between times we actually have a, a contracting service. so. We actually managed the lease vineyard for the um, for the lessee, as well as um, doing our own uh, vineyard work.
0: Okay, so she's a fairly um, diversified income stream, I guess you'd say. What? Just we won't probably talk too much about the vineyard. I mean, our main target is the sheep and beef farming side of things. But you um, you got vineyards in the neighbourhood? How'd that come about? It was just part of the farm? It was the obvious best use for?
1: Yes, we've got. 30,000 hectares of vineyard neighbours just um, down the road and over into the next valley. It's it's not really a passion, Aaron, but you're told to get a water right because it's a scarce resource and it adds a lot of value to your farm. It doesn't actually add any value to your sheep and cattle business, so you have to change your land use to be able to justify it. Council have a policy of use it or lose it. So if you don't make use of it, it can be um, taken off you. So the logical use for the water in our environment is viticulture.
0: Um, yep. So, and, and you effectively substituted, though, what, what went into the vineyard. I think I picked you up. You, you bought extra land or another block of sheep and beef land to go to sort of offset that. Is that roughly what happened?
1: Yeah, very conscious of the fact we don't want to uh, deplete the, um, the the pastoral unit in, in yep. any way. So, um, yeah, yeah, if we can um, strategically replace those lost stock units elsewhere, it's, um, it is quite complementary. We are able to uh, graze underneath the vines from um, late March through to late September. So um, it, it does complement the um, pastoral operation reasonably well, particularly for the sheep.
0: It's, it's another I mean, it's another source of income, uh, but it's also another sort of complicating factor. You were never tempted just to sell that block of land. What, what was the reason you've sort of kept your your own foot in the water, or your, your toe in the water, if you like, doing the management and so on? That's a, a whole new skill to learn and different times of the year to do things.
1: Is it well, just because you my, like
0: Chardonnay? Or? No,
1: no, it wasn't my idea, Aaron. The, um, <laughs> the children thought it was a good idea.
0: <laughs> you lost the so, vote,
1: yeah yeah it was all part of the uh, yep. what came out during the succession planning process and um yeah we we're fairly um we're reluctant to um to sell land um it seems to be a a good land use so um yeah thought that it would possibly provide an opportunity for um future generations
0: so that's as I say, we're not going to talk a lot about the vineyards, but it does illustrate you've got a relatively complex farming business. Now, there's a fair bit going on, we're going to drill into the pastoral side of things. Who else, how does it all run in terms of people on the places, the two of you, other family members, other staff, What? who, who works day to day, helps out, or even season to season?
1: Family members tend to uh, come and go, particularly in their younger formative years with regard to uh, university and what have you. Um, always had a um, permanent staff member who's been on the property for 42 years since um, we both started here at the same time. But um, it's interesting that you suggest it's a, a relatively complex business, Aaron. This kept, up, kept coming up um, regularly during the monitor farm program when we were the mo- I didn't think it was particularly um, complicated, but others had uh, difficulty getting their head around it. I guess it's just what um, what you enjoy and what you grow up with.
0: Yeah, yeah. So complexity is relative, and that's the sort of thing you enjoy having those multiple business operations, multiple streams of income.
1: Yeah, they're all very much uh, complementary. Yep. So, um, yep. Yeah, no, no. They um, they all mesh in um, quite comfortably.
0: What about you, Richard? Is that you, you got a particular passion for part of the business, or are you enjoying the the multiple parts like Chris?
2: Yes, certainly enjoy the um, multiple aspects um, of the property. Um, purchasing the stock plant and machinery, obviously. Jess and I mainly concentrate on on the livestock side of the farm, and found found very good value in local contractors. Just um, strategic use. Of contractors seems to sort of fill any any voids um, in terms of labour. So just recently had um, weed spraying contractors, in, in for a week um, use fencing contractors when required. Shearers do a very good job. Um, we have very good relationship um, with with the local um, tree planters. Um, so, full-time on the farm is, is just myself and Dad um, seem to be able to tick off the day-to-day work, um, but just when things are falling a wee bit behind, we, we will, will call in contractors to give us a hand. We have made a conscious decision to invest in, in, in good equipment, plant and machinery. I think with finance being very cheap at the moment possibly cheaper than we'll ever see again in our lifetime it's a great opportunity to upgrade the gear um, so we can do things efficiently ourselves we we do all of the tractor work ourselves um, but have have very good good tractors and implements just to do things as efficiently as possible so it it is busy it gets busy from time to time but um, very rewarding at the same time.
0: Yeah, it was one of the things I remember well from Lincoln when I was there, they that, that drummed into a substitute capital for labour whenever you can. But speaking of labour, you, 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 42 years, I think you said you've had one employee with you. What's the, how do you manage that? That's, you know, staff management, keeping people on, regularly comes up as a bugbear for, for all farmers, dairy especially, but sheep and beef as well. What's the, are the tips and tricks there to having a successful
1: long-term relationship like that. Gosh, Aaron, you might have to ask him that. <laughs> um, we've got similar interests. He's a um, he's a highly intelligent man, so um, yeah, keep him motivated, keep him stimulated. Um, I value his um, his input into the property, but um, no, it just happened by accident, actually, Aaron. There's certainly can't put a, a finger on it. Um, we we're both very compatible. Yep.
0: Now, just on this, that one of the benefits of, of doing this this podcast, this webinar, is the amount of information I've been supplied from the judges that were involved. And sort of while we're on this topic of people and family, one of the other things they noted, although you know um, the, the business is busy and we're going to talk about the high levels of performance you're achieving, um, they noted, you know, as a family, you guys have a all of you have a fairly high level of community involvement. Is that? something as well that sort of drives your day-to-day to be you're quite engaged in the, so tell us about what you do in the community and, and sort of what, why you're motivated to do that sort of thing that being a monitor probably, farmer for
1: example yeah, yeah a lot of that happens by design rather uh, happens rather by accident Aaron rather than design um, oh, it's one of those situations the, the more you put into anything the more you put out the more you get out of it, I enjoy um, mixing with motivated well organized people, so one thing leads to another um, I had a um a fairly active busy time um years ago on the uh, New Zealand Sheep council, which I thoroughly enjoyed um mixing with those motivated people on a regular basis so um when i retired resigned from that, there was a, a little bit of a, um, a void to fill, so the monitor farm program was, I thought, a um, logical extension to it. Um, yeah, no, most of it is not not planned, It just there's an opportunity arises, so you take advantage of it. So if speaking I could of, pit,
2: sorry, go away.
0: Sorry,
2: if I could just pitch in there too, yeah. Um, uh, motivated was the key word Dad used. I'd, I'd like to say i um, positive people as well. Um, really enjoy being around positivity, and myself being away from home for nine or ten years meant I had to play a bit of play catch up a bit in the industry. And I found being involved in the agricultural community helps boost on and off farm knowledge. Yes, yeah, surrounding myself with positive people is the key. And I've found people that volunteer or people who participate in those extracurricular activities, be it be it beef and lamb farming for profit or federated farmers or our local catchment group, um, those people are generally positive and um, motivated, like Dad said, and, and a joy to be around. They, they sort of boost you up. So that's probably the main reason I enjoy those community activities.
0: So... And on sort of a theme, my last sort of question on this one—it was another one that the the the, uh, the judges certainly raised—and going through some of your background information, it was, it was a big one. Uh, governance of the business is something I think you've put a fair bit of time and effort into. Looked at different options and things. Can you give us a bit of an overview, or both of you between you, give us a bit of an overview of how the business is governed at the moment? The governance structures you've got in place, what you've tried, what's worked, what hasn't worked, and yeah, where you're at.
1: No formal structure as such, Aaron, but um, do value our relationships that we have with, um, with a number of industry people, all of whom can add value to, to the business in their particular area of expertise. Um, we, we meet regularly as a um, family, probably easier to do it on Zoom, actually, rather than when we're all together. On um, on site, so regular updates with the family to keep abreast a of developments and um, specialist help from from industry people as required for um, for guidance and help in, in any particular situation. It's um, something that I've always enjoyed the the planning side of uh, of the business. So um do place quite a bit of emphasis on getting good guidance and, um, and getting it right.
0: Yep. And I noticed in your presentation, Chris, you said you're a, a problem solver. You enjoy a challenge. Is that the uh, same for you, Richard?
2: Um, yeah, very much so. Yeah, really enjoy a challenge. And um, when you're up against it, I um, quite enjoy problem solving and... Um, yeah working hard and overcoming those problems so yeah farming certainly presents those opportunities quite often so yeah so far so good um yeah and enjoying enjoying things so far
0: all right so let's talk about some of those sort of problems and and outcomes let's start talking about the i guess the, the the sheep and beef farming side of things um let's start with the sheep system in a, again, in a nutshell, the elevator pitch or the thumbnail. What what sort of what's the sheep system you're running on the place?
1: Pretty pretty simple, um, pretty simple system. We've we've got a breeding finishing flock of ewes that make up about half the total number of stock units. Um, that's a a closed flock. As such, we vehemently protect the um, the sheep flock, but we. Um, actively trade cattle, but with precautions um, and would probably best be described as a um, dairy support system in terms of carryover cows, leased bulls for dairy farmers and the um, and the dairy beef. Yep.
0: So um, how many ewes, how many hoggets finishing everything? What's the what's the, the oh, uh, outline? The, how does the
1: system work? Yeah, around about uh, 1,400 ewes. 400 hoggets, all, uh, all animals are, um, are mated, and um, we work on having a, a reasonably good clearance of uh, lambs at weaning time in November.
0: Yep. And what's the genetics sort of background of your ewe you flock?
1: Well, my pride and joy was a uh, flock of Corridale ewes. Uh, in my heyday, I was a nettle farmer of the year, but um, unfortunately, over time, the value of wool as a percentage of the sheep income has diminished. In that first decade of my farming career, wool made up 55% of my uh, sheep income and it, it peaked one year at 65%. But over the decades since, it's just um, continued to diminish, whereas um, nowadays it's probably only about uh, 2 or 3% of our sheep income. Consequently, we have changed to a more of a crossbred type flock, although possibly best described as composite, where the focus is very much on meat production, but also conscious of, um, of, of the wool attributes, but um, yeah, primarily um, making use of um, some of the more recent genetics in terms of um, texels and, uh, and fins and uh, east Frisians and the likes.
0: And what sort of lambing percentage are you aiming for out of the u the, the flock for a start off?
2: Oh, um, I should um, probably pitch in here. Aaron being uh, my department these days, um, firstly should should thank Chris and Jane Earle um, from down in the Greta Valley there, who are the ram breeders, um, uh, long down as the as the maternal sire, um, which, and as Dad said, yeah, very much focused on meat production, um, which certainly ticks ticks all of the boxes for us here and. It has had um, very good success um, in other competitions um, as well. Well, last year's winner of the Mulberry Sheep and Beef Farmer of the Year, um, Fraser Avery at Bonavaree, also runs the um, long-down long breed. And um, also Stu Campbell, who won the mint lamb competition last year, um, won it with a long-down. So um, quite a widely adopted and um, very well-performing you. Um, here at the Pyramid, we the, the goal these days is to have a 160% um, lambing. So scanning mid-190s, 190 to 195% in the mixed age and two-tooths combined and, and look to clear, um, look to do 160% um, by weaning. So those figures are from scanning until weaning. Yep. And have you done it? Um, Well, I guess this is going to flow onto the indoor lambing conversation. Um, There was a sudden drastic change in lamb death rates uh, five years ago, which was when we uh, adopted the indoor lambing system, which cut our triplet deaths in half. But it wasn't just the triplet lambs we were saving. We found the system uh, had a flow-on effect outdoors, and our farm-wide survival, um and improved significantly so yes we're every year we've land indoors we've we've had a lamb death rate between 13 and 15 percent traditionally it was anywhere from 20 20 in a good year to 25 percent death rate in a bad year so and
0: that's not just the ones inside you're talking there across the Whole 1400 that, that's
2: years across, yes, across yep. all 1400 years. So, indoors, tradition uh, outdoors with the triplets, traditionally we'd lose about one lamb in three, so say a 33% death rate. Mm-hmm. Indoors, we're, we're still losing, we're losing about 17% of those lambs. But what should be noted is a, the majority of those deaths, deaths can't actually be prevented. So half of those 17% are actually lost before births, so an abortion bug of some description, or they are stillborn, so they're fully developed, but never breathe. The um, preventable deaths um, are very, very minimal. Um, only a couple of difficult birth deaths each year, and some labs just tend to fall by the wayside, and you, you give them as much colostrum as, as they need and, and special care and attention, but they fade away. So. Um, yeah, we're doing everything we can um, to maximise survival, but the 17% death rates and the def- death rate and the triplets from scanning until weaning is is pretty much as good as we can get it. Yeah,
0: and we will drill think, into that because it, it has been really interesting the the uh, not in kind but the indirect benefits of that system you know, across your whole flock, not just the ewes that are in the, the indoor lambing side of thing, but just so your target's 160. Have you got close? Have you done that or is that what you regularly do? Where are you at?
2: Since beginning the indoor lambing system in two thousand and seventeen yes I yep. believe we've achieved one hundred and sixty percent each year um, sure. yes we we're yet to we're actually doing our final weaning draft tomorrow to finalize numbers but it's looking like we'll be around one sixty four one sixty um, five percent and then which, what's, which
0: is, what's the aim with the lamb? Do you finish
2: everything on the place or um uh, traditionally, we always have. Um, so this year, we've actually achieved so far a 91% clearance of lambs prime off mum, and the average was 41 kilos. So so far, we've only been left with 100 lambs. And yeah, I've I've uh, tended to adopt a policy of let's shift our focus. Well, it, it was probably always the focus really. Let's let's just shift focus to next season's lamb production. So. If I am able to sell those lambs store at weaning um, for a reasonable price, I will let them go and um, put that higher quality feed into the ewe lambs or or young bull calves and um, focus on next year's production. So we do have the ability to finish them if we want, but I I just think the feed is um, better put into into preparing for next year.
0: Yeah. And it's always that, you know, those two competing things, the, the lambing percentage again versus the – the lamb live weight gain, but um, that was one of the things the judges noted was the the excellent overall ewe flock performance. Um, I think based on the it's about three years of information, wasn't it, went into the judging. Ewes weaning 60.5 kilograms of lamb per ewe mated, whereas the average around is close to around 40 in that region. So, what's the getting the lambing percentage is, is one thing, and you've talked about the the, the indoor lambing and the, and looking after the triplets better and the flow on effects of that, but how are you getting those lamb live weight gains as well when you've got so many multiples on?
2: It um, comes back to the overall system, I think. Um, well, it, it starts today, really, where it's the day after our main ewe share And this morning we've been through the ewes and drafted out the light condition ones. Um, so it, it's the overall system which concentrates on you body condition, priority feeding soil fertility improved pastures and then intensive management through lambing so we've gone through today and and drafted out anything condition score three or less which will be priority fed on lucerne or brassica through the summer so all of the ewes will be up to a condition score of 3.5 minimum in mid-february when the teasers go out the condition scoring is constant and never-ending the sort of main ones you think of throughout the year are shearing and scanning, but we're, we're doing it all the time. Any of, any of those treatments in between, such as dipping or vaccinating, or even just when you're shifting mobs, you could potentially pull a couple of stragglers out. Yep. Um, so, so constant body condition scoring and priority feeding. Yep. Brain, and when you... Brain, huh?
0: so at the moment you've just shorn so do you still put a hand on them then or you do it by eye when they're fresh off shears how you and but and then rest of the year are you actually physically putting a hand on them
2: um no no fresh off shears it's it's very easy to pick on the drafting gate you need to be practical about these things and one of one of the bonuses of six monthly sharing here is um it's never particularly hard to pull out those lower condition ones so While best practice tends to suggest you should go through and and put your hand on them, um, yeah, we find it very, very practical and very easy um, to to do it year round, really, but particularly um, the week following sharing. Yeah. And so
0: how many yous at the moment, you've just drafted them, how many have you got at that three or under body condition score? And what are you going to do with them?
2: Well, the the ewes and the lambs did particularly well this year. So in a normal year, we'd we'd grab about twenty percent of the ewes yep. out, and um, would go onto the lucerne platform for the right. summer. But um, today went fairly well, and and it would be ten percent um, have come out. So yeah, that that will free up a bit of feed, a bit of extra feed for the ewe lambs, which we'll aim to mate um, at the start of April. A target of forty eight kilos. So a bit more lucerne to pump into them.
0: And the The key thing, you know, you're talking about a minimum of 3.5 in February. How are you keeping those heavy ewes heavy all the way through? You know, in a summer dry environment, it's easy for them to, again, lose a bit of weight post weaning.
2: Oh, um, I'll let Dad answer that one. He's got some good stories about,
1: well, it's not that easy for them to lose weight around here, is it? No, I, I don't think you fully appreciate the environmental factors, um, Aaron. Particularly um, a boy like you from um, much further south. We we have two thousand six hundred hours of sunshine every year. It's um, it's an environment that's very conducive for um, performance sheep performance. It's not that great in terms of soil type for lamb growth rates. We're not really uh-huh. a recognised um high lamb growth area compared with say um closer to the coast south of uh, south of Blenheim. But um a combination of um of things, climate, um yeah. I guess when you've been doing it for 40 odd years, you become a little bit blasé and you know what works and what doesn't work. So um, you just have a, um, a, a plan in place and just follow it each year. Um, always being a, a bit of a fan of planning, recording and monitoring. So the results become very predictable. Yep. But
0: what's the plan though for those heavier ewes? Where do they go? What do they eat all summer? What sort of country you put them on, what are they, you've got well, so the and that for the lights, what do you do with that? Yeah.
2: well this year being um, particularly um, we're wet through early December, we, we've got a fair bit of TAG about, um, so those heavier ewes will just go up doing a clean up job on TAG and we'll look to summer fallow um, about 20 hectares. So, we will have a 1,000 ewes um, hurriedly cleaning up tag and, and try and get those paddocks sprayed out in reasonable time to conserve a bit of summer moisture for drilling in the autumn time. So, um, yeah, this year in particular, a lot of tag to clean up. And um, generally, those heavier ewes, yeah, will just be run on the rougher hill blocks for the summer. Yep. And, and so what's the pastures
0: up, and, and clover and, and whatnot on those those rougher hill blocks?
2: Um with the purchase of the tumble block five years ago, the hundred and eighty seven hectare development, we, we do have a, a bit more rougher feed available. Um, I think it would be fair comment one of the one of the weaknesses on the original pyramid farm was it was all very, very much top dressed and very much improved pastures, but we do have that rougher country now to to put the ewes onto. Um, so, a, a mixture of sort of semi-improved grasses on the pyramid side of the road and, and more of your native resident grasses on the tunnel side, but um, certainly wouldn't be grazing the, the specialist
1: crops such as your summer brassicas or, yep. or the lucerne.
2: All we're so, doing,
1: Aaron, yeah. is maintaining the body weight of the ewes, so um, they it's only a, a maintenance ration, so providing they've got good water, good shade and a little bit of scope, it's, it's not difficult. Yep.
0: What are your, your like your, your semi improved pastures? What are your based? Are you a ryegrass, coxfoot? Are you using sub clover? What are you using on these, these, uh, your, your hill blocks?
1: The, well, if you started on the river flats, um, which is about 25% of the property, that they historically have always been in Lucerne for that specific purpose. Um, moving up onto the um, rolling clay country, which you can get a tractor over the bulk of, which is our main lambing platform, um, always had a phobia about perennial ryegrass and the, um, the, the effects of um, endophytes. Consequently, um, initially when I brought the property, we went through a uh, fescue development, but then over time when the novel endophytes became available and we um, learned um, more to appreciate the effects of valine and lotrim bee, um, have actually gone on to the um, novel endophyte ryegrasses. And um, reasonably difficult to maintain a high um, legume sward in that particular pasture. It's heavy clay country and it's Dick Lucas's. Dick Lucas describes the farm as a ryegrass factory, and that um, ryegrass does enjoy uh-huh. it here. The hill country is a slightly different beast in that not quite so aggressive complementary pasture species. So the um, legumes do do better up there in terms of a percentage of the pasture mix, and, and we've tried um, most of them over um, over a long period of time. Sure, um, some clover gives some um, very good results. We've um, tried other annuals in terms of the top flowering ones on um, your arrowleaf and your balanza and what have you. White clover um, tends to perform very much like an uh, annual in our summer dry environment and that in a dry year, it will die, but there seems to be sufficient seed bank in the soil for it to re-establish mm-hmm. in the autumn. Um, the only one that's been disappointing is um, red clover. But for some reason, red clover doesn't want to be here.
0: And you're saying you've always had a, a bit of lucerne. Have you increased that in recent years, or are you are still roughly the same amount of lucerne you've always had?
1: Um, we, we've got every square inch of the um, yep. suitable lucerne country planted. That's the um, Stony River flat. The um, heavy clay country is just um, yeah, too wet, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. There is potential to do something on the hill, no doubt, but, um, yeah, Rich you can sort that one out.
0: Another project, but uh, so the lucerne is it? Uh, do you use it any at all for supplements, or is it all sort of grazed in situ? What's the? How do you use it in the system? Uh,
1: very much grazed in situ to um, get those um, 90% of the lambs up to 40 kilos you know. live weight at weaning. So uh, supplements are um, actually brought in, and that we do have a uh, a couple of hay sheds full of um, lucerne hay, very good lucerne hay, brought in. But um, difficult to to buy in Lucerne hay these days with um, so many grapes on our um, on our boundary Mm. on on the valley floor. So um, yeah, Lucerne hay has certainly historically been a a very important part of the uh, of the diet. If I could um, just add a comment there about the Lucerne, Aaron, Um,
2: it's. It's quite important for for people to understand that lucerne in our our environment up the Waihopai Valley here, it does have a long period of dormancy and it, we we can't actually graze it or stock it until the second or third week of September. So you have to be very careful not to expose yourself to that winter dormancy mm. for, for every hectare of lucerne. Um, we just about need two hectares of ryegrass, um, particular, in particular your sort of winter-active Italians and annual ryegrasses. Um, um, the you um, first mobs um, kick off in the third week of July, twenty-fourth um, yeah. of July. Um, so when you're not able to stock the lucerne until mid-September, you um, certainly need a um, significant area of, of those winter-active grasses to lamb onto the. Um, Lucerne is great to shuffle the later lambing mobs onto, um, but even, even though they're probably a month old by then, um, but where it is really beneficial is the later lambing hoggets, which um, start start lambing at the beginning of September. It's a great platform for them, and um, of course, through the summer, if we can get, get a, a wee bit of summer rain, the Lucerne obviously stays active and is great for growing out younger stock. So... So while it, it certainly adds a huge amount of value, hence why we've got so much um, on the land capable of growing it, you, you do just have to be a wee bit careful not to not to overexpose yourself, and also yeah. sort of have complementary um, other complementary pastures as well.
1: The other a, issue, Aaron, yeah. is that uh, the Waihopai is completely devoid of artesian water. Consequently, our um, lucerne will go dormant over summer, and that is mm-hmm. just. Um, insufficient moisture to uh, sustain it. it, it will it will never die on you um, as soon as you get a, a reasonable rain, you're back in business. But it would never save you in a drought. Nothing to tap in.
0: But that, that's an interesting disconnect, you know, because lucerne growing with the air temperature and tends to kick away. But your lambing in July, is that because, I mean, that's when your pastures are kicking into gear or is that uh, also to beat that, uh, you know, you are talking about when you go into soil moisture deficit and, and your pasture growth rates? flatten out or bottom out. Um, It's a relatively early lambing if lucerne's not getting out of the gear until mid-September.
2: Yeah, very much so, but the entire farming system is geared around the dry summer. Uh, We tend to hit a soil moisture deficit here in the third week of October um, when pastures start wilting and going reproductive. So first draft is generally the first week of November and then the main weaning in the third week. Um, So Need, need to lamb earlier to to beat the climate but um, fortunately it also coincides with with the markets basically being at their peak. Yep. And it's,
1: a good, um, it's a good bit warmer here, Aaron, than what it is in uh, North Otago or South Canterbury. We, we can grow grass during the winter. Um, yep. Right where we are in the valley is We're on an elevated plateau, and it is quite warm. Um, There certainly isn't a lot of frost protection in the uh, vineyard.
0: Yeah, that's just why it caught my mind that, you know, with Lucerne being air temperature respondent, why there's that gap. But we're um, looking at what we've got to cover and and the time we've got. I'm going to move on to the next part of the sheep system, 400-odd hoggets. Um, And I think I said you're mating them all? And sort of what's your target mating weight? Do you have a minimum weight and an average? What do you, what, how do you, you make that decision? And when does the ram go out to the hoggets?
1: Well, historically, you had to make your decision on what you were going to make in um, mid-January so you could complete your vaccination program in time for um, mating in in late March, as far as your um, uh, Campylobacter vaccination and, and booster is concerned. So um, as a rule, um, I used to cull on the scales, along with other attributes, anything that was lighter than about uh, 35 kilos. So um, you then had between mid January and um, late March to get another 15 kilos on them. Uh, 15, no. Was wanting to target a minimum uh, weight of about fifty kilo, forty eight fifty kilos. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, you certainly um, had to have your wits about you over that um, summer period, uh, over that um, summer autumn period, to get up to a, uh, a yep. minimum of um, forty eight kilos.
0: And is that what you're getting? A minimum, of, not an average. You're you're a minimum of forty eight in your hoggets when they go to the ranch. That's
1: that's the target. Yep. Don't um, don't always achieve it. But, um, yeah, probably looking at an average of uh, probably looking at an average of around about fifty. Yeah,
0: nice. So that's pretty hefty, and it's another, I guess, reflection of the lamb live weight gain you're talking about, and all the things that go into that. So, what do you get out at the other end of your your um you What sort of lambing percentage are you getting out of those?
1: Not not good. That's an area where we need to um, need to focus on improvement. But um, yeah, we're we're struggling to do a hundred percent. 85 yep. to
2: 100 percent? I'm sure a lot of listeners will um, appreciate and um, have experience in, in sort of abortion um, plaguing um, hoggets. It, it's certainly an issue we contend with here and um, quite can't quite come up with any answers. Um, it, it's a bit of an ongoing problem when you lose sort of 20, 20 to 30 percent of those lambs which have been scanned um, it knocks that percent back. We shifted focus last year and thought, well, if there's not a lot we can do about the abortions, let's maximise the the lamb survival, the ones which are born alive. So with the indoor lambing system going, going so well with the triplets, we actually decided, decided to lamb the hoggets indoors as well. Um, so my goal was to have less than a 10% death rate in those hogget lambs. Um, that's excluding the abortions, of course, and um, we managed to do nine percent um, of those nine percent deaths. How many were preventable? Well, not many, I would suspect. We only had one die from a difficult birth. Um, so while we don't have the abortion issue sorted, we're certainly um, maximising the lambs that are maximising the potential of the ones that are born alive anyway.
0: Yep. So we'll, we'll get on to um, that that. Indoor lambing system, or, or the the because now it's across both triplets and hoggets. But um, just the last couple of things on the hogget lambing, what sort of ram do you put them to? And out of the the four hundred odd, do you end up with many dry at those live weights?
1: Uh, historically, we've used um, very good Southdown rams sourced locally. Um, last couple of years, we've actually been using a a, a couple of Charolais as as well. Um, Long-term average figures, I would suggest you probably end up with about a third of them dry, a third of them carrying singles, mm-hmm. and a third of them carrying twins. Yep. How'd
0: you? And just out of interest, how'd you find the Charolais as a sire across Hoggett's Lambing difficulties, well,
2: sh- etc. All. Or- yeah, I'll, I'll speak to that one. You 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 buy the the Southdown and the Charolais rams because. Um, general consensus seems to be you'll have a smaller birth weight. But um, in in our environment, um, yeah, I mean you end up with great big heavy ewes and big lambs and big hoggets. Mm. Um, Consequently, um, the newborn lambs tend to be quite large as well, um, no matter what the breed. Um, No, the Charolais have done done very well for us. certainly have have a superior yield um, mm. conversion from live weight to carcass weight which is selling selling 80 to 90 percent of your lambs prime off mum um, that yield becomes hugely valuable to you so, so yeah. it certainly ticks the boxes in terms of those carcass traits and um, we'll certainly continue to use them.
0: So you're also getting you know good um, clearance of those lambs off the It's no problem they're not hanging around as light tail end stores or anything you're getting a significant number of those away.
2: Um, tend, tends to follow the trend of the mixed-age ewes and yep. tutus. Yeah, very similar numbers. Yeah. Um, albeit, yeah, sort of a month later, so you're not quite at the peak of the schedule. But I think if you can get them, get the Hoggett lambs away from mm. uh, before Christmas, then you should be pretty happy.
1: Yeah. Historically, Aaron, we've had um, superior lamb growth rates with the hogget lambs compared mm-hmm. with the ewes, and that, as Richard said, they're lambing a month later. They're yep. um, lambing on a, a dedicated hogget lambing platform. Um, they're all terminal sires, so supposedly full yep. of hybrid vigor, and um, yeah, they they certainly do very well in our environment.
0: And and I guess one of the things for lamb live weight gain and ease of birthing, your ewe you lambs, ewe hoggets must be a reasonably significant live weight if you exclude lamb, and that by the time they give lamb, they're they're, they're a pretty big ewe already. Uh,
1: that would be a fair comment. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the sheriffs certainly comment on them.
0: All right. Hey, let's um, talk about the, we've sort of talked about getting in lamb, lamb live weight gains, but keeping lambs alive is obviously one of your key targets to achieve you. And and one of the key things to that has been the the system. So tell us about that indoor lambing system, how it all started. Um, I guess the stages you have been through what you've ended up with, how it worked.
2: Yeah, well, probably the, the reason for doing it and the history behind the decision um, would, would be best explained by Dad, so he he'll, could he'll probably give you a bit of a rundown of, of the history of, of the issues we've faced with multiples and the challenges, and I could um, probably
1: take over once we talk about the system itself. Back, I thought just left the room. Had a very fertile corridor flock. Consequently, um, triplets were a bit of an issue, and in spite of my Best endeavours, um, we just weren't making any progress in terms of survival of those lambs. I'd spend a lot of time in the paddock with them, and um, very disappointing results. Consequently, uh, during the monitor farm program, it was highlighted the fact that our death rates were above average, while well, um, a large percentage of those were. Hog at lamb. didn't have any, uh, triplet, triplet lambs, triplet lamb, sorry. Consequently, um, Richard came home after having been away from uh, 10 years and um, left home as a schoolboy and we hadn't made any progress at all. He had experienced um, indoor animal systems in the UK, so um, he suggested it was uh, time for a change.
2: And what were the changes, Richard? What did you see? What did you decide to do? Well for the record the um, only indoor system I experienced in the UK was an indoor dairy farm and um, I can't say that was the most enjoyable seven weeks of my life so I um, <laughs> didn't take take motivation from that but um, yeah no it, it was the fact that it had always, always been an issue the um, management of the triplets and Probably for the first time, we had the infrastructure in place. Um, Recently, had a large. We we always always had a good set of covered yards, but extended those. And um, finally, with myself being home, we had the labour. So, yeah, yeah, thought we'd give it a crack. And um, in year one, I, I should mention it, we were very well supported by beef and lamb as an innovation farm project. So they came on board, and in 20, 2017 was year one, and we very much did everything by the books. So we introduced supplements three weeks before they came indoors. Um, we were we were very strict with the hygiene. Um, we we were feeding the ewes once they left the yards um, to help with that diet adjustment, and um, re- really, really went all out um, in terms of in- intensity. And... As the years went on we just just made things a wee bit more practical, a bit easier to manage and without compromising um, the performance of the system so so if we say so that the general theme, theme of the five years has been best practice and then just modifying the system to suit. so in, in terms of results, like I mentioned earlier've we've, we've gone from a long-term death rate outdoors of around 33 percent to yeah sort of 15 to 18 percent indoors yep. um, and the bulk of those deaths are unpreventable yeah more than half of them are, are abortion related deaths
0: so just walk us through it with uh, a triplet you she's scanned with triplets what happens from then on And how does it when do you take her into the shed how long are they in for what's the feed etc you, you talked about modifying it to what works what have you found
2: works triplet management would start at, at scanning when they are identified and drafted out and put onto superior feed. Um, the, the very much refined system we have now is, well, actually going back to the start, ram harnesses are used at mating, which is mm-hmm. very important in terms of identifying A, targeted feeding, and B, when they are going to lamb. So they're in three day age groups, so we can be fairly accurate with bringing them inside. So the, the day before they're due to come inside, um, we'll start feeding, feeding their supplements, which they have indoors, which is lucerne hay and peas. So they're brought inside and, and get quite comfy and, and put them in a lambing pen, which is generally about 20 ewes. So they're, they're fed and, and have access to fresh water and nice straw bedding. Uh, once they lamb, they're just separated off into a bonding pen and watched for 24 hours. So over that period, we're just wanting to make sure the lambs have got up on their feet. They've all had a good feed of colostrum, and um, and uh, sort of set to go outside. Obviously, check the ewes' udder for milking ability. And if if we think it's necessary, we we will take one lamb or two lambs off, and um, put them into the orphan system. So. It, it really should be called a hybrid system. I mean, if they come inside the day before they're due and they are born the next day and then they're simply in the bonding pen for 24 hours, um, yeah, sort of after two days they're, they're off. We'll um, put them in the laneway and they'll yep. wander off to their paddock.
0: Yep. And is it uh, broadly similar what you do with the hoggets?
2: The hoggets were was really interesting doing those. It, were, it was... It was quite interesting to see the differences in behaviour and how how the system worked. Just having one or two lambs really made things a a lot simpler. Um, When you come down in the morning and three triplets have lambed and you've got nine lambs wandering around, it can be a bit of a challenge sometimes. But um, the ewes (laughs) certainly let you know if you've you've put the wrong lamb in with them. Um, So the triplets were uh, the the hoggets were were a bit more straightforward, just with singles and twins. Um, They had a much lighter footprint than the triplets. I mean, a, a big triplet you could potentially have 15 kilos of placenta in there. Mm. Um, so it creates a bit of a mess in the pens, um, quite a bit of new straw required just to keep things uh, fresh, but the hoggets certainly had a lighter footprint and were easier to manage. Um, but no, the the sheep are intensively managed year round. They're used to being handled. They're used to being in the yards. Um, so yeah, so both the triplets and the hoggets adapt really well and They've certainly got good memories as well. Once they've been inside one year, they're um, quite at home when they come back the following year. Yeah.
0: So there's, there's another saying, and you've talked quite a bit about the impact this has had on the overall sheep system and the, the overall survival, overall use survival and things. But there is a saying, um, I remember being drummed into us, performance is vanity, profit is sanity. So, I mean, the numbers are pretty compelling, but you've also done some of the, you've crunched the objective numbers, what it costs what the returns are, it's not just, you know, more lamb survival is great, but it is more than offsetting the cost of the system, isn't
2: it? Yeah, the original intention wasn't to make money. Um, it, it was about addressing an animal welfare issue. And we've certainly done that, which is hugely rewarding. A, a bonus is having the system um, being profitable, um, So if you look at the indoor system in isolation, um, we've simplified the system down. So it costs around $10 uh, Uh per year to feed, Um, but saving half of those triplet lambs, particularly if they're they're worth say $120 as a store or $180 as a prime lamb, the, the indoor profit in isolation is sort of reaching the $10 mark. But you have to look at the change to the entire farm system, where if we've dropped from a 20 to 25% death rate farm-wide to a 13 to 15%, um, yeah, yeah, the, the farm-wide profit is, is approaching thirty to $40,000. And the critics might say, oh, that's not all because of indoor lambing. It's superior genetics or possibly the climate. And that would be fair comment. I'm, I'm sure it has played a part, but it's an awfully big coincidence we've had such a dramatic improvement in lamb survival since 2017 when we started indoor lambing.
1: Yeah, we've got got to be a wee bit careful, Aaron, And that I I just wonder whether um, we've possibly been focusing a bit too much on um, production and and recent agricultural history and that we should be more... Aware of environmental and um, and welfare issues, so um, the fact that the uh, indoor lambing ticks those boxes and is also profitable is a um, is a win win situation.
2: Hmm. It's actually achieving all probably, of the above, isn't it? Just while we're on the topic, Aaron, it's it's probably important to note um, while while the indoor system. Well, I I dare say after five five runs, it's fair to comment. It's been a home run for us where we are, but wouldn't want to suggest uh, similar results would be replicated elsewhere. I mean, potentially they could be if people wanted to give it a real go, but there's there's unique aspects to our operation and our farm which do make it work. Like I said earlier, we've got got great infrastructure in place um, to do it. We've got the labor available Um, Our sheep are are really used to being handled, they're used to being in the yards and um, having us work with them. Um, Doesn't get particularly wet and cold, which might sound counterproductive to lambing indoors, but when the sunshine beams into the shed and you can put the roller doors open at 7.30 in the morning in the winter, I, I think a bit of cleansing goes on. It's a very healthy environment, we don't seem to get those infections or animal health issues. That other people have faced. So, if people wanted to give it a go, I, I would say just dip your toe in the water. Follow best practice like we did in year one, and um, you might decide it's not for you. But you never know; you might just be on to a winner, and and you could could do a little bit more the following year. You,
0: you mentioned the labour side of things there, Richard. I think, um, and that's in your estimates of costs and margins. Does that include an allowance for labour, or is that you're doing that effectively in kind, with, given you're there anyway on the farm?
2: In my original calculations, I I did include labor and I'll just look up here what the costs were. Yeah, this demonstrates the sort of shift in the system. In in 2017, the labor came to $54 a year. I think I was working on paying someone $25 an hour for their time. A couple of hours per year, year. uh, but in 2018 and 2019, the labor cost was $25 and then $24 Um, And, of course, now doing the the hoggets indoors as well, the cost per animal would would be going down all the time as we gain those efficiencies. Um, So, yeah, it may sound labour intensive, but while I was managing the indoor operation, I was also doing daily farm tasks. I was out shifting the um, winter grazing breaks and other odd jobs. So I certainly wasn't in the shed from dawn till dusk. It's um yeah, sort of a low input system or sort of as simple as indoor lambing can get, I suppose.
0: And um being it was a Beef and Lamb New Zealand Innovation Farm project, there's a bit of stuff written up about this too, isn't there, if people want to read more.
2: Yeah, very much so. There's um been various newspaper reports and um I think there's a couple of um a bit of info on the Beef and Lamb website about it, yes. So um there's there's good good breakdown of all those costs and the benefits. Um, out there, if people want to want to look it up,
0: dig up some of that. But hey, look, just um, we keep moving on because it wasn't all about sheep, but it has been so far. Um, the cattle side of things, it's still uh, it's a fairly significant proportion of your stock units of cattle. But what's the role of cattle in the system? It, it's um, are they there to support the sheep system? Are they they uh, how do you deal with them? I mean that that's a that's a it seems like a significant proportion of cattle for somewhere that does get dry in summer.
1: That's fair comment, Aaron. Um, I guess to a certain degree it occurred through accident rather than design and that I just found it was easier to achieve your sheep objectives with a higher proportion of cattle. Um, we, we're not big on drenching young stock um, the ewe lambs were actually drenched at weaning last year, but they haven't been drenched since. So um, we we do have a little bit of an issue with tapeworm. I'm not sure what the economics of that is, but we do do, do a tapeworm drench at weaning, but that that's about it. I find if we can uh, incorporate cattle grazing and integrate the two systems, sheep and cattle, Um, the cattle do a brilliant job in terms of vacuum cleaners, of um, uh, sucking up parasites. They're also very good at um, grooming pastures for the um, sheep. Um, Carryover cows in particular have have been um, very beneficial in that regard, might not necessarily be particularly profitable every year, but certainly add a lot of value to um, to the sheep operation. By and large, Um, Historically, I had a reasonably stable flock of sheep in terms of numbers, but cattle were used to soak up any uh, surpluses of feed or, in times of deficit, cattle went. Consequently, um, over the years, we've run anything from about 35 head of cattle up to 500 head of cattle. Um so the cattle is, is very much a relief valve in terms of um giving us a little bit of flexibility, but um it does certainly um make attaining your sheep goals much easier with a higher than what you'd consider a desirable proportion of cattle.
0: So I won't I won't say we'll avoid the word complex with your cattle system, but it it's reasonably variable or varied, is it? You have a I think from what you're saying, you have carryover dairy cows. There's some bulls going in there, and what do you run? And is it is it constant year to year, or do you just take opportunities as they they come and go to to be that give you that flexibility to support the sheep?
1: Actually, it's interesting in that the uh, the cattle enterprise was described as complex during the monitor farm program. Um, consequently, one very astute um, operator who's now a um, member of the farmer council um, just came to my defence and said that it's not complex, it's just flexible trading. <laughs> yeah. Consequently, I um, always used to do a, a bit of a feed budget, feed plan round about the start of April, um, when you had a pretty good idea of um, how your winter green feed crops were establishing and, and what your pasture covers were over the property, and then just work out how many cattle was able to um, winter and would then just go out on the market and source whatever was the best value for money, um, which was relatively easy to do with a very proactive, um, very competent stock agent. So we, we fell into a lot of these enterprises by um, by accident. Um, but funnily enough, they, they're not high demand animals, and they do tend to um, complement each other and integrate quite well.
0: So you don't actually have any breeding cattle on, do you? You're not, you don't do any carb or anything like that? It's all finishing, yeah. trading,
1: fattening type very, stuff? Yeah, very much, very much a trading operation. If, if the sheep's all about breeding and finishing, mm-hmm. the cattle is um, strictly trading. So, I mean, a, Sorry, Carol, i Richard. A, a key component to it, um, Aaron,
2: is is the, the Jersey bulls, which if we hit a um, soil moisture deficit, is generally in the third week of October? Um, when do you think sort of three quarters of our cattle actually leave the farm to um, go out for mating? Uh-huh. Yeah, the um, same third yep. week of October. So um, by the by, the Jersey bulls, as a as a bull calf at 100 kilos in December, uh, grow those out to a target of 300 kilos the following for the following October when they're used for heifer mating. They come back to the farm. Um, in January or February, and we'll run them through to October as a two-year-old, where they're leased out to the dairy farm again, so off the farm for two or three months, back late January, and actually carry them through that next winter as a three-year-old when they're finally sold in October. They're sold to the dairy farmer who uses, uses them for mating, and then they're off to the works. So while while you are carrying a, a bull for three years, it's actually off farm for about six of those months, and it's actually when we're we're drying drying up, um, yeah, hitting that soil moisture deficit. So the Jersey bull trading certainly um, fits in with with the system well. Um, we will buy 40 Frisian bull calves at the same time, and they're a straight fattening proposition. Uh, goal is to do a kilo a day and sell them as a two-year-old at a target carcass weight of 360 kilos
1: you'll be horrified aaron at um how little feed you can winter a uh jersey bull or a carryover cow on but then open the gates when the um oh. feed comes away in the spring
0: that's the most impressive thing because their selection for feed conversion efficiency especially those carryover cows what they'll what they will live on and where they live on but that's a whole other story i haven't seen some of them some of the places they experimented with them down here. But, so what is the carryover over cows? You do them every year or are they something uh, flexible depending on feed and that feed plan you talked about, feed budget?
1: The actual cow itself is, is pretty much an integral part of the um, yeah. system. The numbers is what varies yep. from um, from year to year. Um, yep, so um, that's very much just um, a, a case of um, available feed.
0: Yep. So Significant part of your stock units, and and we've talked about what's comprised. But I guess you know it's, it's a, other than that, it is a fairly straight system. They're there to turn feed into beef and or go away and turn uh, feed into um, calves for dairy farmers, I guess, is sort of the their theme. But um, other than that, it actually is a pretty simple system. It's not got the the uh, complexity of the sheep system, arguably, where you're having to rear hoggets, get hogget lambing, and all these things we were talking about, lamb survival, etc. There's there's actually not that level of
2: complexity to it. Yeah, it's, it's pretty low input, and um, the beauty of the jerseys is, yeah, they're converting feed, but it's it's very average feed. The the 40 Frisian bull calves, um, I guess they're competing directly with the sheep. You really want to pump the high-quality feed into them. They will do a bit of a clean-up job through the summer where required, but generally they want priority feeding, whereas, well, the jerseys in year one need to get up to that 300 kilo weight by the um, First October, but as a two and a three year old it's it's quite low quality feed you're giving them so uh-huh. while while on a twelve month basis, the Frisians are more profitable if you analyze it per megajoule of metabolizable energy the um the jersey will certainly win hands down so
0: why do you have the Frisians when you've got that the the jerseys work with them being away and 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 then, as you say, in the last couple of years they are living on poorer quality feed or lesser quality feed. What's the role of the Frisians, Those forty Friesian bulls.
1: That's historically, I've used them as a bit of a buffer, Aaron, in that yep. um, if the pressure came on, you, you can um, the, the stock agent can um, sell those um, animals um, on the telephone overnight. Yep. But yeah, it's a bit hard to um, to, to sell them, be, given their profitability. So uh, we will throw some supplements at them if necessary to get through a a short term um, pinch. Yep.
0: Following on from the cattle, you, I mean the, the sheep and beef farm of the year wasn't just about the sheep performance, the cattle performance, it was talking about your overall farm business management, and you mentioned there the feed planning, the feed budgeting for setting the number of cattle that come in and out depending on feed supply. but what other planning do you do what's the i mean farm business planning, how important is that to your business?
1: Oh, that's that's fairly critical, and that much easier to achieve your goals if you've got something written down that you um you can you can focus on. So, um, always had a farm business plan, but um, that's that's a moving feast, and that um you you tick one box off and uh, and another door opens. So, business plans being very important. Um, got very very good rapport with the um with the bank managers, so we like to keep the um financial um information flowing and and up to date um regular soil testing so um yeah we've got a pretty good um, pretty good feel on where we are at in terms of um, nutrients um, enjoy the analytical side of the um of the business um the feed planning feed management feed budgeting uh, um yeah I, I think if i had a well, from my perspective, I feel if I had a strength, it's possibly been the, um, the, the planning for these various tasks, giving the information that we have on hand, um, to the extent that the actual execution of the task itself can become a little bit boring when you've done so much um, prior planning and, um, and preparation.
0: And on the financial stuff, do you do, you're doing cash flows, how often are you updating those?
1: That's probably a weakness of the business, Aaron, in that um, historically about 85% of our income was generated in a six-week period during um, November and December when we um, yeah, weaned the lambs and sold the ewes and insured and, and sold the cattle and what have you. Um, and a lot of that income... A lot of that product was actually sold forward on a contract basis so you uh, had a pretty good idea of what your lambs were going to be worth, what your ewes were going to be worth, you, you knew well in advance what the um, cattle were going to be worth and that the Friesian Bulls were on a contract, the Jersey Bulls is, is all on a um, fixed price um, agreement, the carryover cows was um, pretty much a, a, a given and that in some of those um, earlier years, I, I had the carryover cows sold before it actually brought them. So you mm-hmm. knew what they were going to be worth. So never really got too analytical with the budget till round about Christmas time when you had all the money in the bank. Yep. Um, and then that first half of the year um, wasn't a lot happening on farm in terms of um, expenses. But um, the big expenses um, seem to occur in the second half of the financial year from um, from New Year through to the end of June. So budgeting was pretty easy when you um, had the money in the bank and you could just um, allocate uh, the spend accordingly.
0: Has that changed, though? Have you found you've, you've had to monitor it more regularly and, and get your planning, your aptitude and your, your, your um, fondness for planning more around the, the cash flows and forecast budgets and that sort of thing?
1: Uh, very much so, and yep. when you're um, when you're borrowing megabucks from the bank <laughs> to develop vineyards, you've you've got to give the impression you know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah.
0: So do you do a lot of um? I mean, you, you, you're in, you, you obviously you're planning around it. You, you're assessing your enterprises, working out your margins and that sort of thing in your decision making. You're You do that for the cattle, or is it first and foremost how they fit with the system?
1: Probably what's more important is how they fit into the system Mm -hmm. and that, if anything, um, could be a little bit weak on that um, analysis and that if it's a natural fit, it will certainly take priority. The onus is then on us to get it performing at a level where
0: it is going to be profitable.
1: A lot of the projects tend to be more of a young nature. I'm not changing back, yeah, part way through because uh, I don't chase market work out what it does naturally without having to modify thing.
0: Hmm. We're cutting in and out a wee bit here. Can you hear me guys?
1: Yeah. Oops. Yeah, we've got you back
0: now. Yep. Yeah, just a wee bit of static. I think most of that answer came through all right. But um, Perfect. One of the things I think that's come through is, has been a bit of a, a long-term focus with where you're going. So some of these longer-term projects like the, 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 the vineyards, but also where you're going with the sheep and, and this. Um, Farm and environment planning side of things is something the judges noted and talked about. Um, you've had a reasonably long-term view, I think, of what you're going to do with some of the land. So tell us, there's a bit of, um, you've done a bit of planning around, you've got some QE2 covenants and some significant natural areas all sort of identified and or protected?
1: Uh, yes, yes, was, was always, um, always very passionate about protecting those areas long before it um, became trendy. Consequently, um, put a 2 covenant over an area that I thought was special but um, didn't gain a lot of traction from others. Consequently, it was quite interesting when we were an early adopter of the uh, significant natural area survey locally and the uh, the ecologist that um, actually did the survey um did agree that it was a rather unique area so um that was quite heartening um we're we're basically valley floor there's not a not a lot of the original flora and fauna um left so what there is we certainly um like to um, protect because it only amounts to a relatively small area of the um, of the property, and it just happens to be on a uh, land class that's not really um, useful for anything else. Yep. So, um, yeah, very keen on protecting it for future generations.
0: And I just want to... A long time ago in this discussion, you talked about, you know, just the, the focus on productivity that's farming heading, and there's other things that need to be taken into place, and, you know, some people call that the triple bottom line or there's the quadruple bottom line side of things, but... On the rest of the place, have you, with a focus not just on productivity, the things you've changed or or things you now do in terms of how you manage the land to make it, you know, to use that sustainable word, um, uh, to fit better with your natural resources and your land management units and those sorts of things?
1: Richard's probably um, well. I was always very um, keen on. On being ahead of the um, ahead of the game, but Richard's very proactive in in that area and trying to um, keep ahead of legislation. So um, yeah, he can deal with that one. Well, inside the farm gate, um, just a
2: quick note is um, coincidentally or fortunately, the Tummel development block, the 187 hectares, had um, very similar land use capabilities to the original Pyramid side of the road. Um so say twenty percent stony river flats, thirty percent rolling clay country that you can get a tractor over, forty percent hill and um ten percent um steeper hill, um, which sort of aligns itself with farm forestry or amenity plantings so within the farm boundaries we'll we'll look to replicate the the sort of outstanding environmental work of the past in in terms of land use and um, protecting water quality and Um, Yeah, yeah, best practice as such. But um, one thing I I did want to give a plug was outside of the farm gate is the the local community up here in the Avon Valley have formed an incorporated society called the Avon Valley Catchment Group. Um, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn when I say we're the only voluntary or member funded um, catchment group in Marlborough. And um, earlier on there were a few critics who um, who, who didn't think it would happen, and um, it was going to be all too hard. But it's been a real credit to to the community up here. There's six farms involved, and um, we've got a water testing regime um, going on, and and also working in collaboration with MPI, Marlborough District Council, uh, Landcare Trust, and a couple of other parties, and and. Our water quality is, is actually outstanding based on, on these water testing results, but it's the biodiversity side of, of things we want to concentrate on. And a lot of my generation, well, and the previous generation up here, spent a lot of time in what's called the Fernie Gear Dock Reserve um, at the head of the Tummel River. And just the Tummel the River itself is in a deep river gorge and is terribly overgrown with invasive weeds. And it's a bit of an eyesore when you drive past. Um, heading up to the Gear Reserve. So the catchment groups banded together and it, 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 in the past it's certainly been easier for groups to to get funding who had degraded waterways and um, having pristine water was was a little bit of a speed bump for us but um, with good collaboration we've got the project well underway now and um, are looking at improving and sort of creating this native corridor up the Tamil River. Um, But we were soon made aware that these catchment groups are about more than water quality it's actually about community and best practice farming and we've now we're on path to have every every property involved um to know their emissions numbers Uh they're all going to have a fresh water farm plan by the end of next year and, um, yeah, it's quite enjoyable actually working together and instead of sort of looking over the boundary fence at each other. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a bit of work, I guess, inside the farm gate, particularly on the tumble block going on, but also within the community as well.
0: It's uh, the irony of it, isn't it? When you've got good water quality, it's actually a challenge for a catchment community group. But um, just referring back, you said, you know, you're surrounded a lot of vineyards, etc. So has your catchment community group actually got a pretty wide range of farm types I mean how many other the the, the vineyard owners etc in it as well or is it mainly sheep and beef farmers what's the the makeup?
2: Yeah yeah quite a diverse um, group of yeah. land landowners which is all the more rewarding so you've got your traditional family sheep and beef farms to uh, two, of, two of our properties have a vineyard ourselves included obviously um, we have a a a sort of lifestyle block, as as such, and also um, what has been great to see is a a large forestry um, corporate has come on board and is looking to support support sort of community events. So um, yeah, quite a diverse um, range of land uses and people as well.
0: So we're sort of coming to where I wanted to get to when we we wrap this up which is we've talked about how you got to where you are what you're doing at the moment and now it's to think about where things are going so this is one sort of project you're talking about there with with the group what what's next though for the the Dawkins family as a whole sort of on the on the farm business what's the the current challenges or risks you see you want to address and deal with in the in the next few years if we were to come back in 10 years time what would have, what would have changed
2: I think outstanding farm performance is, is something you always want to improve. Um, but as, as we mentioned earlier, possibly production needs to peak at some point and, and you need to look at the, yeah, the, the bigger picture, some of those sort of more sustainable outcomes and, yeah, even outside the farm gate, um, create a bit of a legacy sort of in the community as well as on farm. So looking looking to maintain um, production standards, um, but but also improve those community involvements. Um, yep. The the tunnel development continues, um, and and this goes back to the sort of conversation about financial planning and 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 decision making. I mean, off off one twenty hectare block and off one thirty hectare block of improved improve pasture up there, we. We cleared 85% prime off mum from our tutus um, at at 39 kilos. Um, so, I mean, the common argument may may well be just just leave that and move on. But when you're talking about an intergenerational property and and you have a real passion for the land, we we sort of want to continue to improve the the blocks. We'll go through and subdivide and put in reticulated water and yeah some might argue that the money would be would be better invested elsewhere but again I, I think if when you're a custodian of the land um yeah there's there's a bit more to it than economics yep.
0: good one. i don't know if chris is still there he's gone out of picture but
1: yeah um, I, I am supposed to be a vineyard manager nowadays but um yeah, Richard and I are very much um, animal pastoral type people. So if an opportunity came to acquire more pastoral land, um, we would look at it very seriously. Um, we really enjoy land development. Um, get a lot of uh, lot of thrill out of improving um, the productivity and well-being of land. So yeah, would would sooner prefer to uh, focus more on the pastoral side of the industry.
0: And I don't want to sort of end. I mean, it's not a I want end on a high note, but before we get to that, there's there's some lower notes or down. I mean, if thinking of risks, what's the things that sort of keep you up at night or, or worry at the moment about where you're at with your business? Or is there anything?
1: Um, I, I probably wasn't particularly um, correct when I said um, Julia and I have offered uh, had have um, run as a husband wife partnership since 1978. We never married until uh, 1979. Um, consequently, I was um, farming at the pyramid by myself. My parents had moved into town, although father continued to um, commute on a daily basis to the farm. But um, what what I did worry about, and I'm not a worrier at all, but what I was concerned about was um, injury or illness. And mm-hmm. that um, I, uh, I I broke bones every year on the rugby field So um, the first thing I did was um, give up rugby and um, I've never felt better. Um, So injury and illness was of concern. I've never laid awake at night worrying about climate change, as some of the politicians do, but I've always been aware of the fact that it was very important as quickly as possible to drought proof the farm and of course you go through that um, 10 year drought and it's you then have a series of wet years so then you decide well yes we're going to have to uh, future proof it in terms of um, adverse flooding and what have you so we've always tended to have probably over exaggerated um, development. Um, we've gone for big culvert pipes, we've gone for good tracks, we've metalled all, um, all the gateways. So we was always conscious of those adverse events, whether it be very dry or very wet. So now that it's quite uh, fashionable to be aware of climate change, we're, we're certainly well aware of it, but um, we'll, we'll deal with it as it occurs. But if I was going to um, wake up at night and worry about anything, it would possibly be biosecurity issues the um Chilean grass is getting um getting closer all the time um, we had a, a a notice of direction for um em a few years ago but um with with very good farm records and and good planning and what have you that um, ran its course very quickly um, so yeah aware of um aware of the need to maintain our vigilance as far as um biosecurity is concerned yeah. so yeah, along with climate change and illness and injury are my main concerns Richard um, hopefully will have a different perspective on things. Yeah. well you?
2: probably taking over such a successful operation um, yeah the, the within the farm gate the worries are fairly minimal I mean very fortunate to, to take over a successful operation and, and have you know a lot of that trial and error work has been done. And i um, still having my parents nearby. it's um, like having a couple of consultants. So within the farm gate, not a lot not a lot worries me day to day. It's probably the bigger picture stuff. Um, our, our social license and right to farm, uh, the millennial generation, which is my generation I guess, and um, then the next next, um, next generation coming through are very environmentally conscious. They want the pasture to play story. But the exciting thing about that is it's a challenge but it also provides the most potential and um, I think top performers will be rewarded in the long term so increasing expectation from consumers but I, I think New Zealand farmers are up to the challenge and will rise to the occasion. Um, another one and it's even reached reached our valley, is land use change, particularly carbon farming you know, with the carbon price at $65 and rising, sheep and beef just, just can't compete at those levels. Um, as well as carbon farming or, or forestry, there's residential encro- encroachment as the population increases and farms get subdivided and and sold off. Um, yeah, again, you're right, farm gets a wee bit questioned. We're we're very fortunate in our area and and have a lot of involvement in the community, but... You hear of horror stories from other regions, um, complaints about effluent on the road or log trucks going past early in the morning or someone using their tractor late at night. Um, people receive complaints about that. Um, I guess a topical one at the moment is agriculture potentially coming into the ETS or how the emissions pricing will work. So yeah there's I guess there's a wee bit to worry about, but it, it's that bigger picture stuff, so um, we'll we'll pay attention to it and um lobby on it and give advice when we can um, but certainly within the farm gate, I think we've got things reasonably under control. Cool.
0: I'll tell you the thing, that I, the risk for me and the thing I worry about is we talked to Rhiannon and said she said she wanted a 60-minute podcast and we're, or a webinar and we're getting closer to 90 minutes, but that's because there's been so much to talk about and, and in some depth, but some of it she may be able to edit out if she wants. But I still have one last thing before I wrap up and it's sort of come through indirectly all the way through and what you've talked. Chris, I don't know if you remember in that PowerPoint you sent me, your presentation, you had a slide there called Your Rules, Chris's Rules. Remember those?
1: Uh, yeah, 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 I'm pretty sure uh, we can bring those up. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: I just thought they they seem to be a neat summary of what you've um you've talked about all the way through. The first one was that you're in the long in the game for the long haul so you need to get it right.
1: Um yeah, yeah, I I don't like um learning from my mistakes. I um I like to uh work out what does best and then implement that let someone else make the mistake. So, um, yeah, base all our decisions very much on science.
0: And that's your next one. Knowledge is power back science and research thoroughly. Um, Third one is we don't accept average in any part of the business. So you've sort of got a constant improvement focus?
1: Oh, just attention to detail. I, um, yeah, don't like to compromise standards at any stage. So um, it it just seems to flow through the, the whole operation. We get very good service from the um, from, from the land buyer. Um, the the shearers are outstanding. Um, yeah, the, um, the the silage contractors, the uh, baleage contractors. You, you set high standards, and it just seems to um, create a favourable environment.
0: And probably the key one, I just, you've talked about being a problem solver, the benchmarking challenges, which is some of your other rules. But the key one in there that I did want to get to is you don't rise to your level of expectation. You fall to your level of preparation. What do you mean by that one?
1: Oh, I was watching an NRL game on, um, on television one night and the Warriors had been um, absolutely dicked. By um by the Broncos or someone. Anyway, um there was this um rather hard-looking um Polynesian boy was um interviewed and the uh, commentator suggested to him that um you didn't really rise to your level of expectation and he very eloquently just said no, but we fell to our level of preparation and I, I just thought that summed it all up and that um it's it's those so seven seven P's proper prior planning and. Preparation prevents poor performance. So, um, yeah, you set high standards, plan accordingly, and, um, and execute.
0: Awesome. Hey, look, I don't know whether you've got anything to add to that one, Richard.
2: No, I think that sums it up well.
0: Yeah. I thought so too when I was doing my prep, and then having listened to you guys for the last wee while, I thought that was probably the big one—the the importance of planning and how that's the, been the, one of the keys to your to your success and your outcomes. So we will wrap it up there because we have gone a wee bit longer than we thought, but again, that was because there was a lot to go through and we wanted to do it in in some depth. So. This is going to be, uh, well, some of you will be listening to this beforehand, but this is also going to be tied in with some some video as well, so um, you'll get a chance to see some of what we've been talking about, both I think in a in a bit of a webinar, and then after that it will be online, possibly somewhere on the on one of the Beef and Land New Zealand um, YouTube channels or somewhere on YouTube anyway. But look, I will wrap it up there. So look, I just uh, say thanks very much to Chris and to Richard Dawkins from the the Waihopai Valley. Which I know very little about, but I know a whole lot more about it now, having talked to you guys. So hey look, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron.